dear Sunday school class. We never expected these days, did we? And I'm so grateful for this opportunity to adjust to our new way of doing things and still communicate with you and still give us the opportunity to study God's Word together. We started 1 Corinthians some months back and everything was well timed and peaked by the Lord to culminate on Easter Sunday with the great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. We didn't get to do that. And so I'm grateful for this new way of communicating so that we can go ahead and finish up our 1 Corinthians study and then see what the Lord has for us next. Let's review a little bit. You'll remember that Corinth was the chief city of Greece. It was a place of abundant sin. The, uh, there was blatant immorality and all throughout Corinth, there were horrible things happening. There were about 250,000 citizens and there were almost two slaves per person. So it was a crowded place, a busy place, a big place. It had an Acropolis that was situated on a 2,000 foot high granite mound. People would go there to worship the goddess Diana or Artemis um, as sometimes she was called. So people were a lot like today. They were strongly intent on doing it their own way. And so there was division and immorality among the people of God. You expect that among lost people. You expect that among people that have never heard the gospel. But you don't expect it so much among God's people. And they were involved in all kinds of horrible things as a church and as a people of God. Corinth needed the gospel, but Corinth also needed teaching. They needed correction. And so the apostle Paul had gone to Corinth, had established the church, and God had sent him there. And after establishing the Corinthian church, Paul went on to Ephesus where he stayed, I believe about three years. And from there, while he was in Ephesus, he received word from the Corinthians saying, we've got some questions we need to have answered. And so they sent him some way a list of questions. And so a lot of the book of 1 Corinthians is Paul answering the questions that they have asked. So um, the truth is they were a mess and they were in a mess. And Paul had to look at that situation and think, oh my goodness because they were in such trouble. My heart hurts for the Corinthians because they did not have the written word of God. They had the Old Testament. A lot of them were Gentiles, so they weren't familiar with the Old Testament. So all they had was what people could tell them, was what the apostles had preached, what had been passed on to them. And so in the midst of this huge mess, as sinful as they were and as chaotic and messy as the Corinthian church was, Paul called them saints. And I want to remind us just for a minute from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. Paul says, I'm writing 
to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So no matter how messy they were, no matter how we could look and point fingers at them, Paul called them saints. I find that relieving. I find it relieving and refreshing. So we learn here that a saint is a per <coughs> excuse me, a saint is a person who is sanctified in Christ, one who calls Jesus Christ Lord, and knowing that any true believer is a saint. So a believer has been made righteous by Christ, has been made holy by Christ. God himself declares a believer just through the sacrifice of Christ. That is a saint. We can be called a saint because of the finished work of Christ and because we have taken that by faith and received that uh, as uh, received him as our Savior and our Lord. So we can call each other saints. Well, in spite of their behavioral issues, <clears throat> their cultural issues, Paul calls the believers in Corinth what? Saints. Saints. I don't know that I would have done that knowing what they're into and knowing what they did, but I find relief in the fact that the Apostle Paul is teaching me those people are a mess, but they believe in Christ. They have bowed to the Lordship and the resurrection of Christ. Call them saints. Call them saints. So the Corinthians were holy because they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they were not holy in the way they lived. We are declared holy, but as believers in Christ, then it becomes our job to display that holiness that is Christ's to the world around us. We act what we are. He's declared us holy, so we need to act holy. Well, <clears throat> if we skip on through, we've been through all of these chapters together, but if I skip on over to 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verses 36 through 40, Paul basically is saying to them, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Do you think that the Bible, that you wrote the Bible? Because what are they doing? They're, they're, they're carnal and they're fleshly minded and they don't have any real concern for each other or for other people. They didn't love each other. They didn't have any grasp of spiritual matters. And so Paul is dealing with them biblically and firmly and lovingly. He's telling them the truth. Now, they're a lot like some of us. <clears throat> they didn't want to come under the authority of God's word. And when we don't want to come under the authority of God's word, we begin to live outside the boundaries of what God's word says. That is devastating when we choose to do that. I guess the best illustration I have of that is sometimes maybe <clears throat> if you go to a fish pond, I know some of you fish, and you toss a fish on the side of the pond, what's he going to do? He's going to flop and flounder. Well, suppose one day that one of those fish decided, I am too uh, restrained in here. I don't have enough rights. I don't want to come under the authority of God's creation. I'm flopping out of this lake 
and I'm going to live on the shore. I'm going to live over here on the bank. What's going to happen? He's going to flop. He's going to flounder. There's going to be no order to his life. And if he doesn't get back in, then what's he going to do? He's going to die. And so that's what happens to us when we decide we know more than God knows about what things need to be like. And so we can jump out of the boundaries of God's word, but when we do, something is going to mess up. It's going to be a miss. And so these Corinthians were very carnal and they, again, my heart hurts for the Corinthians. They didn't have a Bible. We've got this word. We can go here and look and see. They didn't have that. And so they didn't always know for sure, perhaps, what God's word had to say, but what they knew, they weren't living. Well, Paul has spent 14 chapters teaching and correcting and establishing order in this church. And he is reestablishing, trying to reestablish the testimony of God's church. And that brings us to 1 Corinthians 15. There were people in Corinth who denied the resurrection. You see that in chapter 15, verse 12, when Paul says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Well, to deny the resurrection is to destroy the basis of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is based upon the teachings of Jesus, it is based on the life of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the compassion and mercy and grace of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, and with all of these things culminating in the resurrection of Jesus. If you don't have the resurrection, the other things don't matter that much because the resurrection was the defining moment, God's defining moment when victory over sin and death was established. It was complete. It was finished. It was not finished because God didn't have anything else to do. It was finished because the debt was paid in full. That's all that it took. So chapter 15 is the longest chapter in 1 Corinthians, and it is the greatest chapter in the whole Bible on the theme of the resurrection. Now, Paul began the chapter with the evidence of resurrection. He starts out with explaining how there was so much proof. I'm so grateful that the Lord was willing to do that. He walked on the earth 40 days after the resurrection, appearing to all kinds of people. There should have been no doubt, uh, but always there's doubt because we're always thinking doubt and incorrection and thinking the Satan is always going to put doubt <clears throat> in our minds and hearts. But Paul begins chapter 15 with all of these evidences of the resurrection. All of Christianity pivots around the truth of the resurrection. It is the cornerstone of the gospel. If the resurrection is eliminated from the gospel, then we have no life-giving power. There's nothing different about the gospel. And so we, the resurrection is what makes the gospel the gospel. It's what makes Jesus different from all other gods. And so you know that in Romans 10 and verse 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth 
the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that he has raised you from the, that, you, that God has raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be, be saved. For with the mouth, with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made to salvation. So what does that say? Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and do what? Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. So belief in the resurrection is foundational to salvation. Now there's kind of a two-sided problem here. And this is where we're headed to uh, deal with what the problem was in Corinth. The two-sided problem is that, um, number one, there can be the problem of disbelief in Christ's resurrection. The other side of that is that there can be confusion about our own resurrection. So the Corinthians were dealing with both of these things, but most of them were dealing more with confusion about their own resurrection than they were dealing with confusion or disbelief in Christ's resurrection. Uh, same problem exists today for many people. And so Paul is teaching us here and he's teaching <clears throat> that Christ rose from the dead and that one day believers will rise from the dead also. We're going to rise as well. And we get most of our information about what that's going to be like from looking at the resurrection of Christ. So beginning in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now that's some pretty heavy stuff. Let's call this, these two verses, let's call this the testimony of the church. And basically he's saying, you already know this. You already know this. This is not new to you. You received the message of Christ and his crucifixion and his resurrection, and you stand in that message. You're saved by that message. You are brethren. You are saints. And so he gives us that. And then their lives had been miraculously changed. There are some faithful, incredible believers in Corinth, even though Often it looks like their testimony is being snuffed out by all the sin that was there. But their changed lives were a testimony to the power of the gospel. And the resurrection is what gives power to the gospel. The resurrection is what gives power to our lives. Well, there's a qualifying phrase here that I want us to consider for just a minute. He says, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now that's a warning. And we could spend a long time on that one thing, but let me just talk to you about it for just a minute. There is non-saving faith. There is a faith that will not save. And so he's referring to that. Now you'll remember from our studies of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and other passages, um, that one of the evidences of saving faith is enduring in the Word of God. 
You keep on with that long walk in that direction. It's enduring in the Word of God. You hold fast to God's Word. Now, those who lack saving faith won't continue in the Word of God. Don't continue in the Word of God. It is only by God's power that we're saved, and it is only by God's power that we are kept saved. We don't keep ourselves. God keeps us. He holds us. We are kept by Christ holding us fast. And so the reality that I'm holding on to him is evidence that he is holding on to me. We're clinging to one another. And so when some let go of the truths of God's word and can live without God's word, they're not bothered by sin in their lives. There's evidence there's a possibility there that their salvation was not ever real. We have other incidences of that in Scripture. Jesus taught about people who had non-saving faith. Uh, Matthew 13, you will remember this in that chapter, is the parable of the souls. Sometimes we call it, or we might call it, the parable of the sower. And in that parable that Jesus gave, there were some seeds that fell beside the road and the birds ate them. There were some seeds that fell on rocky places where there was no depth of soil and they didn't have any root, so they withered away. And then there were some seeds that fell among thorns and the thorns choked them out. And some fell on good soil and yielded a crop. Well, Jesus went on to explain that parable when he said that the seed beside the road is the one who hears the word and doesn't understand it. And the evil one snatches away that word, that seed that has been sown in his heart. Seed sown beside the road, the rocky places. Our heart, we hear the word and we immediately receive it with joy, he says, but it is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution comes because of the word, he immediately falls away. Then there are thorns. One hears the word, but the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Then there is good soil where one hears the word, understands the word and bears fruit. So Jesus spoke also of many kinds of fish. Um, there were lots of fish caught in the same net with the good fish being kept and the bad ones being thrown away. He goes on down in that same chapter to talk about that. He said that often tares look like wheat, but they're not. He spoke of houses without foundations in chapter 7. He spoke of virgins without oil in their lamps and gates and paths that seem right but lead to destruction. So apparently some of the Corinthians had intellectually or outwardly acknowledged that Jesus was Lord and Savior and had risen from the dead, but they had not committed themselves to him. They were aware, but they did not bow. They believe like demons believe. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, demons believe and tremble. So 
One can acknowledge Christ, but not receive him. One can acknowledge Christ, but not stand in him. We're not saved by him. They were not saved by him and did not hold fast to his word. And that is a significant symptom that something is wrong. When you can go on and on and on without that, without a problem. So this is what Paul is preaching to them. And he's preaching the word to them. Now, a positive response to preaching is one thing. A genuine faith is something else. Positive response versus genuine faith. So there is useless faith. It exists. It exists in many of us. Jesus said, Matthew 7 again, many will say, Lord, Lord, in the day of judgment, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not perform miracles in your name? And I will say, I never knew you. The virgins came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. And the Lord will say, I don't know you. So the fact that in spite of the immaturity and the weaknesses of the Corinthian church, they even continued to exist was a testimony to the power of the gospel. They were messing up a lot of stuff, but they were holding on. They were clinging to it because God was clinging to them. So Paul was ashamed of a lot of, that, uh, of what they did. He was ashamed of much of what they did. But he called them brethren. He called them brethren. You can be brethren and mess up. And so Paul, with this loving heart and with the authority of God, is correcting them and he's teaching them what's to come. So verses 3 and 4, we have the testimony of Scripture. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. A lot can happen in three days. And so Paul says the Scriptures here, we know that to be the Old Testament. The Old Testament clearly taught the coming death and burial and resurrection of Messiah. On the road to Emmaus, when Jesus explained to the men all of the things concerning himself, he was using Old Testament scripture. So he said, beginning with Moses and the prophets. And so he explained according to the Old Testament. He explained to another group seeking a sign, the sign of the prophet Jonah. At Pentecost, Peter quoted from Psalm 16 and said that David looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. That's in Acts chapter 2. Uh, Paul quoted Moses and the prophets to King Agrippa. So when Paul says here, according to the scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament. It was not a new thing, and it was not in contradiction to Jewish belief that there would be the resurrection of Messiah. Now, if we go on down to verse 5, here's the testimony of eyewitnesses who saw Jesus. 
Um, verse 4, to begin the sentence, he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep or some have died. And last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. The word appeared here is interesting. Jesus was recognized by those to whom he chose to reveal himself. Um, Mary Magdalene at the tomb didn't recognize him at first. Then you have the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And on both instances, Jesus said something, did something to cause them to realize who he was. He revealed himself. Acts chapter 1 and verse 22 tells us that one of the requirements for apostleship was having seen the resurrected Christ. And the first apostle to whom he appeared here, he says, was Cephas. That was Peter. And so he appeared to Peter. Um, we're not given any information about that appearance. Um, it was after his appearance to Mary at the tomb we're not told why he appeared to Peter separately. It's kind of fun to speculate about that. Um, it was maybe because of Peter's deep remorse at having denied him. Um, he also was the leader of the apostles. That's a possibility. But Peter had forsaken the Lord, but the Lord had not forsaken Peter. And so it was not that Peter deserved to see him first, but for whatever reason, God in his great wisdom and love and mercy appeared to Peter. And when we get to heaven, we'll get to ask questions about what that conversation was like. It's such a picture of God's grace. And perhaps Peter needed to see him the most. Um, God meets our needs where we are. He knows which of our needs are the greatest. Well, next Jesus appeared to the 12, and it actually was 11, but they were called the 12. And they all saw his resurrected body. They were capable, honest, reliable witnesses to the most important event in world history, past, present, or future. Well, maybe not future, because he's coming again. But these laid the foundation for the church. And from the beginning, it was based on their teaching, their beliefs, and their practices until it could be written down into God's Word. Um, John chapter 20 and verse 19 and Luke chapter 24 verse 36 tell us that in the evening, would have been Sunday evening, the disciples were gathered be, be, behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. So they've had quite a weekend. Jesus was crucified on Friday. The Sabbath was on Saturday. Everything was still. And on Sunday, the body is no longer in the tomb. And so the disciples are afraid, and they apparently conclude, well, if they got him, they're coming after us. And so they're all together uh, standing in, 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 this, uh, in this room, gathered behind these closed doors, and all of a sudden Jesus just 
shows up and says, peace be with you. Shalom. Hello. And so it goes on. After that, he appeared to more than 500 at one time. And so scripture doesn't give us any indication about who they were or where they were. It doesn't tell us a lot. It just tells us that it happened. And those are always interesting things to think about. So even at the time Paul was writing to the Corinthians, this was more than 20 years after the resurrection. A lot of those people were still alive. They knew it firsthand. They remembered. They could talk about it to their friends and their children. And then it says he appeared to James. We're not told which James. Um, two of the apostles were named James. There was James, the son of Zebedee. There was James, the son of Alphaeus. Um, then there was James, the half-brother of Jesus. Half-brother meaning Mary was their mother, but Joseph was the father of this James. And so this James finally became a key leader in the Jerusalem church. And later he authored the book of James in the New Testament. Now you remember that James, like his brothers, did not at first believe that Jesus was Messiah. Nope, didn't believe it. John chapter 7, verse 5. But now he is a witness to the resurrection. And so Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 and John chapter 21, the first 14 verses tell us that over a period of 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus appeared to all of these people. He appeared to all of the apostles on other occasions that were not specified. Um, but then finally, Paul says, he appeared to me one in due time. Look at verse 8 of chapter 15. And last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. The testimony of Paul. Paul was not among the original apostles. Neither was he among the 500. He was an unbeliever. He had been an unbeliever for many years. And Paul, last of all, was allowed to see the risen Christ. When Christ appeared to him, on the Damascus Road. Um, this was after the resurrection. It was after the ascension. It was not during these 40 days. But all of these other people to whom Christ appeared, except perhaps James, were believers. They were believers. And Jesus met them in that place. Look at verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. So the message of the resurrection was the common message that was preached. That was it. It was key. It is the foundational element of salvation and of Christ's victory over the world. 
the heart of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins and was buried and he was raised on the third day. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you only know him in your head or have you bowed your heart to him? Are you like demons who believe and tremble or are you like true believers who hear and bow? That's the question. And so this is proof of the resurrection of Christ. And then next week, we're going to look at what do we believe? What does Paul tell us about our own resurrection? Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege you've given to us and you have brought us to this place for such a time as this. And you are making media available to us so that we can get your word out to the whole world and to each other. I pray that you will help us to understand the critical time that we're in for sharing the gospel. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. And I bow to the Lord Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, who died for my sins, was buried, and arose. And I know that he's coming again. Would you bless this word? Multiply it according to your will. Speak to our hearts and bring us back together. And we do pray that you will act against this virus that is consuming the world and that all eyes will be on you and that we will know and understand that you have done it. Our eyes are on you and we're grateful and we call you and confess with our mouths the Lord Jesus. Amen.